Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the role of populist right-wing parties in the Australian federal election, and we'll also talk about the federal seat of Macquarie. My guest today is Ben Moffat. Ben is an Associate Professor in Politics at the Australian Catholic University. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ben. There has been a long-term trend of fewer voters casting a ballot for Labor or the Coalition at federal elections, with a major party primary vote in the House dropping just below 75% for the first time in 2019. Recent polling suggests the major party vote could drop even further in 2022. While the Greens are the largest of the minor parties, there are a growing range of small parties competing on the right wing of politics, including One Nation and the United Australia Party, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Ben, do you expect to see an increase in the vote for these parties in 2022? In a word, yes. Whether this makes any difference is another question. So let's just put, put it in some context. The polls since the beginning of April have been showing One Nation and United Australia Party capturing, you know, they, they kind of have 7 or 8% between them. Yesterday's polls said t- maybe 10%, but they've just been hovering basically between 3 and 5% each. If we take those parties last time, One Nation got in the House of Reps just over 3%. Um, United Australia got 35 If you throw in some of the other kind of minor um, right parties, which we can talk about, in a bit, um, we're talking about only about 8.75% of the total. Um, and in 2016, that was closer to 5%. Um, so that was basically United Australia Party returning. They weren't in the Senate, it's different. I mean, they get closer to 12%, and it was similar numbers in 2016 for that kind of minor right, let, let's call it a minor right block. If you look at the, such low polling for the major parties, can't just be explained by the rise of the teal independence. That vote will go some, like I suspect if there is a protest vote or people looking elsewhere, some of that will go to some of these minor right parties. Um, I suspect that Palmer will definitely do better than last time. And I think, you know, we're recording this on Monday. It looks like the Reserve Bank will probably um, raise uh, interest rates tomorrow on Tuesday. Um, and Palmer's really pivoted his messaging, you know, from the freedom, 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 back stuff to around uh, interest rates and kind of the economic issues, which is kind of interesting. So I think he'll get some of that, but it's, I don't think it's going to be a, a, a massive, a massive change. Um, and more importantly, um, there's, there's very little kind of practical uh, ways for them to, to get in at the moment. Um, Cata will get his seat. On the minor right, because that's that's what he does. I mean, despite claims about Craig Kelly being our next prime minister in United Australia Party's ads. No, I don't see Kelly getting elected in Hughes. No, I mean, this, they're not going to get any House of Rep seats, so it almost doesn't matter too much. I mean, we can talk about uh, how they direct their how to vote preferences. That's that that might be a question. And it's hard to tell for the Senate, but again, there's only so many realistic entry points for them this time. I mean, that that sixth seat in Queensland, you've got the two biggest kind of uh, vaguely, you know, populist right figures, let's say, Palmer and Hanson running for that seat, along with Campbell Newman to throw into the mix. There's just not that many seats for them to win. It's a game of musical chairs. There's only only one spot left for them to win, and... 
you know, maybe Hansen loses but to one of those others, but there's not room for both of them really. And maybe it would be different, interesting if they were in different states and they could both pick up seats, but um, that's not really the case. Well, before we move on, because I, I want to talk a bit more about who these people are and how these parties work, but um, one of the things as well, you talked a lot about House vote compared to Senate vote. The One of the limiting factors in the House is often that they don't run everywhere, and one of the things that's happened this time is that UAP was already running everywhere, but One Nation is now running nearly everywhere, and the Lib Dems are running in about two-thirds of seats. So there's just a lot more right-wing candidates to attract votes. So I think we will see that House vote just climb for that, but none of that will translate into any seats changing hands because any of the seats that they could have been remotely competitive in, they were already running in last time. So that may translate into an increase in the headline vote for minor parties without, as you say, without changing anything in the outcome. And the Senate is interesting because there doesn't seem to be much of a prospect for these parties outside of Queensland. And I mean, we can argue about Jackie Lambie. I, I don't think she quite fits this category. No, I, I mean, I think she's populist, but I don't think she's a populist right figure. No, no. Okay, so parties we're talking about here, we're talking about One Nation, the UAP, the Lib Dems. Um, they're the three big ones, I think, in terms of who's running a lot. There's a bunch of small parties too. And then there's also the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers who are definitely are a minor right party, but they're much more of a state political presence than they are a federal political presence. Now, you're you're an expert on populism, yep. which is not the same thing as these parties. Which of these would you describe as populist parties and which ones wouldn't you? And what, how do you draw that line? Yeah, good. It's a good question. Um, so populism basically is a political phenomenon where the, the major cleavage in society is between the people versus the elite. So to be a populist party, basically, you've got to have a lot of rhetoric about we're representing the people against these cronies in Canberra, big business, we're standing up for the little guy, etc. I mean, that's why that's why I say someone like Jackie Lamb. That sounds like Jackie Lambie, right? But I don't, yeah, where she sits on the left-right spectrum, I think sometimes hard to tell. Of those parties that you mentioned, the ones that are clearly populist to me are One Nation, United Australia Party, and I mentioned CADA before. But there's actually a fair bit of variance, I think, between what types of populism there are. Like, um, so One Nation is kind of a quintessential what political scientists call populist radical right party. And that's, they combine populism, with nativism, that is kind of an exclusionary um, form of nationalism, so anti-immigrant sentiment and the like, along with authoritarianism in terms of their kind of um, their views on law and order and the like, you know, heavy punishments. for. So when we talk about populist radical right, that they fit really well into the kind of broader global scheme of people like Marine Le Pen, uh, your listeners would have been watching the French elections probably um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, presidential elections. People like Donald Trump, populist radical right figure, Viktor Orban, Hert uh, Wilders in the Netherlands, you know, this this wider global trend of populist radical right parties. Palmer's different though. Palmer is a, an interesting creature. So his party, I would just call a populist right party. And it's not populist radical right. It, there's no nativism going on there. I know there was flirting. I don't want to downplay the, the political communication, particularly in the last uh, federal election where they, you know, things went off the air in terms of kind of some of those memes, some of their political messaging, uh, and some of the people it seemed that they were consorting with were definitely on that nativist spectrum. But if you actually look at the policies of the party, there's nothing about 
um, you know, immigration. In fact, they note their achievements as still from 2013, helping free asylum seekers and the like. The original version of the Palmer United Party in 2013 positioned itself as being pro-refugee, if anything. And I remember at the time there was controversy within the Greens because some parts of the Greens were quite willing to do preference deals with him and other parts were like, well, I know he says that, but is that really really what he thinks? Um, And then, yes, they've moved much further to the right when it's been convenient, but very much opportunistic, right? And they have jumped on the anti-vaxxer bandwagon, but you're not hearing much on that now, which I think makes sense because most people have their vaccinations. Maybe some of those did that under duress, but most people appear to be quite pro-vaccine. It doesn't appear to be a good base of political support. The air's almost run out of it. You just look at those billboards, right? They were freedom, 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 freedom. Uh, we can't trust these parties again. And now the, the, the messaging's changed. You can almost pinpoint it. He, he, he did that, um, his National Press Club address. It was almost a complete pivot. I was having a look on the website. Those, those anti-vax kind of freedom policies have dropped to the bottom. And even Craig Kelly's not getting wheeled out to the same extent. The other right-wing minor parties I want to talk about, Lib- Liberal Democrats are an interesting one because they don't, they do not fit that mould at all, and they very much sometimes feel like they have very particular ideology, and they're quite narrow about where they stand politically, and are a lot less. Op- I would not call them opportunists; like they have an agenda, they're kind of not really willing to go outside that. No, I agree. I mean, they are, um, they're not a populist party. If anything, they're actually quite elitist and they're quite happy to, um, uh, to kind of, you know, prove their elitist kind of business credentials and the like. Um, they're, they're such an interesting party. They've become a bit of a like libertarian halfway house for people who got sick of other parties or who appear on Sky News a lot. <laughs> you know, Latham was there for a bit, uh, John Ruddick and now Campbell Newman, but they, they, they've got a, pretty clear ideological platform you've got to give them that (laughs) and they in one way you know they've got Campbell Newman who's ex-LNP I mean Pauline Hanson used to be in the Liberal Party Clive Palmer they all have heritage in the Queensland coalition back in the day but it does feel like the Liberal Democrats are a bit more comfortable being the right-wing libertarian wing of the Liberal Party like they actually overlap a little they're a bit more comfortable with the Liberal Party I think than some of those other groups I think some of their supporters would be pretty comfortable being at the right wing end of the Liberal Party or the Liberal Democrats, depending on the the moment. Yeah, I mean, in in another life, you, it wouldn't be weird for Tim Wilson to you know be in that party. Yeah, and then there's the shooters and fishers and farmers. I mean, pretty straightforward. You know, Nationals not doing their job, so we have to do it. <laughs> and quite willing to work with the left a bit more. I mean, maybe not so much the Greens, but they work quite well with Labor. Um, they are kind of an an alternative Nationals party. And in that sense, they they don't have the same kind of ideological bent of someone like the Lib Dems or even One Nation. She's left now, but Helen Dalton, who was one of their state MPs, um, they've had some state lower house MPs who are quite moderate, actually. Yeah, I mean, and it makes sense <laughs> for there to be that position on the right or even that moderate right, because um, given the nationals are so much in the pocket of um, the Liberal Party, just given a coalition set up. Yeah, it, make, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I mean, you know more than me. I mean, New South Wales is where they really prosper, isn't it? Yeah, it's their heartland. I mean, they've got 
they they won three lower house seats at the last election, plus they have two upper house MPs. One of those lower house MPs has now become an independent. But yeah, they had they had five seats after the last election. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty impressive, actually. What do we see as the issues that are splitting these voters off from the coalition at the moment? Because, you know, Labor has been losing ground to the Greens and this if some of the polls that we saw last night are right, the Greens could be on track for quite a good result at the election. Um, but on the right, uh, it, it appears that, you know, this declining major party vote is happening in a number of different directions. What are the issues you're seeing as the ones that are making it hard for the coalition on its right wing flank? I think we do still have to mention the kind of vaccine mandates and the the kind of that anti-vax sentiment because three of those parties have all kind of glommed onto this in a big way. Um, you know, obviously United Australia, but One Nation's been banging the drum pretty hard as well. You know, Hanson and Malcolm Roberts showing up to the the Canberra protests and the Liberal Dems. Um, which makes actual kind of ideological sense, their libertarian kind of thing. So there's there's that. I mean, I think the coalition tried to manage that by, I mean, George Christensen as part of the coalition, now, now a One Nation candidate, finally went where he belonged. They've managed to be able to have that anti-vax sentiment with, still within the party. So I don't think, if you, if you really cared, you, you could still vote for the coalition uh, about that stuff. I, I, I wonder if that's going to work for any of them. I don't think that. Fr- I just think it's if it's the kind of as I said before, the free the air's gone out of that freedom balloon. You know, maybe there's a couple of percent there, but if it's splitting between all of them, it's not going to add up to very much. It's interesting looking at the candidate lists, um, like googling candidates who are running. Not so much for the Lib Dems; they very much have their people who are their people. But um, One Nation and particularly the UAP, it's not uncommon you Google someone and you don't find out anything about them actually running in the election, but you find out, oh, they're they're a leader of an anti-vaxxer campaign group or they were speaking at rallies against vaccine mandates or blah, blah, blah. You know, like that is reasonably common. After all, between the two of them, they've had to find 300 House candidates. Like they've, they've had to go scraping the barrel a bit. They've definitely found some people from that movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the question is how, how much bigger is that movement and that sentiment out there? I mean, the other thing is, of course, like hardcore racism. If you, uh, you know, the co- the coalition does pretty well on that again. But if you're really anti-immigrant, you, you obviously one nation. That, that's no surprise to anyone here. Um, but again, I think that that's been made a bit hard for them, given we haven't had much migration going on because of because of COVID, then the lockdowns and everything. So, I think the perceptions of corruption um, also, you know, kind of uh, splinter them off uh, all of these parties to some extent. And I mean, that's what unites these parties as well as the teal independents. I mean, <laughs> everyone actually going against the coalition at the moment. These these quite correct perceptions of corruption and you notice that on all these parties platforms um and then obviously the rural issues for for Cata, you know it's a localist thing you know far north queensland and same for um the shooters fishers and farmers so you know what there's actually a fair bit of choice if you're a right-wing voter in the australian electorate if you if you're not keen on the coalition you've, you've actually got a fair bit of choice where you want to park your vote what you say it's interesting about there being choice because on the left, I mean, there are there is also more choice emerging on the left. But one of the things the Greens have been very effective at is because they have that consolidated vote, they can win Senate seats. Maybe if all that vote was behind one party, they would be winning Senate seats in every state. 
but they're not. They're like probably one of them will win a seat in Queensland, and we'll get to that in a minute. But that's probably it. You can imagine if uh, the Greens in another dimension, in another situation, was a bunch of um, state-based parties. Well, they, the Greens are, but if they weren't unified and if they split off onto social issues, uh, environmental issues became more became more split on that regard. Yeah, it might be a similar situation. Well, now, I mean, the vote. one of the things about the minor party vote is it's now getting big enough that you do have a few percent for animal justice. and yeah. Uh, you have parties like Reason and Fusion that have kind of what used to be single-issue left parties that have merged into them. We've, we keep mentioning it, but the Queensland Senate race, that's kind of the centre of the minor right conflict of this election. We've got three prominent figures, all of whom are current or former parliamentarians, running for these three bigger minor right parties. Pauline Hanson's defending her seat, Campbell Newman, Clive Palmer, and kind of the fourth candidate in that contest is Amanda Stoker, who's the fourth, um, the third Liberal National Senator up for election, um, who herself is quite comfortable on the more right-wing end of, of the coalition spectrum. Um, what's your take on that race? Firstly, it's it's fascinating that it's all clustered there in one seat um, uh, to have kind of some of the central figures of the right fighting for that one seat. I, I don't know how it's going to play out, though. I, I mean, it, it, it's the Senate's notoriously difficult to kind of um, work out. I mean, this is more your bag. Do you, do you have a take of who who's most likely? I still think it's Hanson. I think she has the profile. She has probably credibility for a certain group of people of being there. She's the incumbent. Like, Clive Palmer has the money, but... He's had the money before and it hasn't translated into electoral outcomes. So, like, maybe that'll work, but probably not. I don't think Newman can win. And I think probably it's not really about Stoker. It's about the total size of the LNP vote. And I don't think it'll be high enough for them to hold their third seat. But it could be. Um you know, I guess it's possible if the polls are really wrong, the right could win four in Queensland, which is what they currently hold. But I think, I think the polls would have to be extremely wrong for that to happen. I, I think it's. I think. Um, I mean, I don't want to say credit where credit's due, but Hanson. I mean, I haven't seen much commentary on this, but I actually think, yeah, not Hanson, but One Nation. Over the last few years, it's done. Uh, I think a rather effective job of broadening its messaging. Like it's no longer just an anti-immigrant party. I think having, I mean, I don't know whether this is just by accident, like the people who have kind of other other players who have come in, it's not just her party anymore, you know. I think having um, Malcolm Roberts uh, kind of adding that vaguely libertarian, so, you know, vaguely so- sovereign citizen kind of vibes, and then Mark Latham, I mean, he, he's just, he's anti, basically his misogyny and his anti quote unquote cultural Marxism, his, that, the gender stuff, the, he, he, you know, woke, he's, he just hammers that over and over again. So the party actually has a few more, um, I, th- I think it's got more to run on than it, than it previously had. So that's why I said earlier, I wouldn't be surprised to see its vote go up a bit more. Well, I think that's always the challenge is, can you create a broad church umbrella right-wing party of Greens of the right? And probably One Nation, I mean, they were the original one back in the 90s. Um, back then there was a lot less competition on the right. The, the minor party vote was just a lot smaller. Um, but, 
you know, the, certainly the recruitment of Latham and having state MPs, that, that party has a history of electing state MPs and then losing them really quickly because they can't work together. Hanson can't cooperate with others. Um, she's a very She has a very authoritarian leadership style. If she's gotten over that and she's found a way to be able to work with other leadership, other power centres in the party, um, God knows that was always a difficulty in the Greens was Bob Brown had his own agenda, but he didn't have that dominant position in the party and there were people who were able to do their own thing, then there is potential for one nation to grow and have presences in state parliaments and build up its own local machines and kind of absorb some of those other parties. Palmer is just a pure protest vote. I mean, how big is that protest? They change their policies every bloody election that they run in. For, for what is their, is this their third election they're contesting? Basically, they basically didn't contest the 2016 election. I think they ran one candidate, yeah. Frankly, they should be, if it was a proper political party, you'd think there'd be some um, solidification of a base membership uh, despite other than just an email list, you know, like some party machinery, but it's it's not. It's, it really is Palmer's electoral vehicle. It's a personal machine, yeah. It, purely, purely. The seat of the week this week we're talking about is Macquarie on the outer fringe of Sydney. Macquarie covers the Blue Mountains and Hawkesbury regions on the northern and western fringes of Sydney. Macquarie is Labor's most marginal seat. Susan Templeman has held the seat since 2016 and was re-elected in 2019 by 0.2% margin. Indeed, I've had some people argue to me that it should be considered notionally liberal, even though there's been no redistribution, because population growth has been faster in the Hawkesbury in such a way that if you weighted the relative vote, and there's a huge polarisation that we'll get into, the Liberal part of the seat is now bigger than it was, and with such a slight, tiny margin, that flips it. That's not how notional margins work, but um, it's an interesting idea. As I said, there's a massive variation in results between the Blue Mountains and Hawkesbury. Labor won most booths in the mountains in 2019, winning about 70% of the two-party preferred vote in the Upper Mountains. Meanwhile, the Liberal Party won 64% of the two-party preferred vote in the Hawkesbury. So that's like a 34% gap between regions. Uh, indeed, I did a blog post recently that um, looked at how much the vote varied between the most Labor bits of a seat and the most Liberal bits of a seat across the whole country. And Macquarie, most of the seats that are at the top of the list are big rural electorates, but Macquarie stands out like a sore thumb as having a huge amount of variation. Ben, you grew up in Macquarie, right? Uh, what do you find most interesting about the seat? Yeah, I mean, that's right. I grew up in the Hawkesbury part of the seat and most of my extended family lived in the Blue Mountains. So I know both uh, parts of it really well. It, like, it's, it's a weird seat in that regard. Um, you know, I was looking at your, your post about this and it made a lot of sense to me because the Hawkesbury and the Blue Mountains have a completely, I guess, different character. I mean, Hawkesbury really is viewed as, um, I guess, the the, the border of those limits of the suburban kind of metro Sydney where, where city hits kind of the rural. Um, and I would say it's much more in line with the kind of that Bible belt that stretches out, out to northwest Sydney, you know, Bork, Castle Hill, Borkham Hills and the like rather. Whereas the, the Blue Mountains has its own distinct characteristics. It's a separate region from Sydney. Um, you know, you've got tree changes, more left-leaning artists and so forth. Despite the fact that they're only, you know, divided by, you know, a few kilometres, um, re- it's worth looking at Ben's, Ben's post on this because it's literally a divide between, like, there's, there's not a, a slow, like, growth 
between there's not a middle area that's a kind of safe zone for both parties. It's really split down the middle. And indeed, some seats are marginal because the areas inside them are marginal, that you have a lot of booths that are 50-50. Uh, but then you have other seats that are one safe Labor seat, one safe Liberal seat that have been stitched together. And that's basically what the Hawkesbury is. You know, I mean, Blue Mountain State did fall in 2011, but generally it's a it's a safe Labor seat in Hawkesbury. You better believe it's a safe Liberal seat. Um, yeah, Blue Mountains is an interesting one too because the um, the lower mountains, the so upper mountains, you know, tree-changey, hippie element, um, high Greens vote, lots of people who moved out of Newtown live up in Katoomba now. Lower Mountains has a little bit of that. It doesn't go away, but it also has a bit of a blurs into Penrith, right? It kind of has a little bit of a outer Western Sydney vibe. It, it does have the interesting element. I feel like you could put – it's a dilemma they've had with redistributions, and for a while they've settled and just said, we're just going to leave that alone. In 2000 and I'm going to say 2007, I think it was, they completely redrew the electorate. So Macquarie lost the Hawkesbury and gained a big chunk of the Central West, which is what Macquarie was back when Ben Chifley was the representative back in the 40s. That's what that's what Macquarie looked like. It covered Bathurst and out there. I did that for one term. They put Hawkesbury in with uh, Greenway, which was kind of the northern tip of Blacktown. And then they reversed it three years later. They went, oh, that was a, that was a bad idea. We're not going to do that. I feel like if Penrith had a little bit more of a population, you would stitch to the Blue Mountains together with part of Penrith. But Penrith is just exactly the right number of people for one electorate. And so to do that, you would then be spilling the rest of Penrith out to like stitch it together with Blacktown or Fairfield or Campbelltown or something. And so if you did anything like that, it would it would have these massive knock-on effects all through Sydney. And I think the AEC at some point has just made a conclusion of gone, these are two distinct communities of interest, but they are two clear communities of interest and we're going to put them together and make one marginal seat. And so it's it's a really interesting example of how those redistributions work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's, uh, it's, a facet, it's fascinating. And, and what you were saying before is correct. I mean, Sid, Sydney, uh, Hawkesbury is kind of the area in Sydney where, where population growth can still continue. There's still a lot of area and space that you can build um, and, and it's spilling out there. So whereas that's not the case in the mountains, you know, you can't build, uh, you know, you can't build the housing estates that you see in Western Sydney um, in the Blue Mountains. There's no space for it. The geography doesn't allow it. Yeah, it looks like a big space, but it's actually just a narrow strip of land between national parks. Exactly. I was going to say the other thing that I think is really interesting watching this seat that's held by, what is it? It was 400-ish votes, I think, in the two-party preferred last time. You know, it's 0.2%. Is that since the last election, this is a community that's, that's, well, the Hawkesbury has experienced significant floods two two or three times, I think. And only a month ago, the latest latest floods. Um, And obviously bushfires since the last one. I'm I'm wondering how much this this plays into... um, you know the, the the climate change issue if that will matter I, I i'm not sure but i can't see it hurting uh templeman who's the sitting uh, alp member even if it lowered the liberal 2pp in the hawkesbury from 64 to 50 or like 55 or something like that would just um that would make a big difference floods in the hawkesbury um we can't forget of course that 
the major bushfires happened in this term of government. And they didn't affect as many houses in that part of Sydney, but the Upper Hawkesbury was badly hit by bushfires. There was people were covered in smoke for months, right? And like the Blue Mountains has its own history of catastrophic bushfires too. So I think if if natural disasters and climate change are front of mind, that's definitely help um that definitely makes things harder for the Liberals in Macquarie. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to ignore. I mean, this, this is day-to-day stuff. You know, can you drive over the Windsor or Richmond, North Richmond bridges? This has affected everyone I know in, in the area. So it, I, I would suspect it's difficult for it to not be front of mind. Is that going to be the case in three weeks? Yeah, it, as we said, it'd be interesting to see if it, if it makes a minor change. That minor change can actually have flow-on effects. A little thing worth mentioning as well, the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Senate candidate for New South Wales is uh, is actually a councillor in the Hawkesbury. So that's an interesting one that we've got a couple of local councillors running for various minor parties in New South Wales as well. Sustainable Australia is running a, their Senate candidate as a North Sydney councillor. So um, it's interesting that that's a path the Greens have gone down in the past that other minor parties are now using their council as a platform to try and jump to the next level. Any last thoughts about Macquarie? I think I think it's weird actually that it hasn't gotten as much coverage uh, as it should be getting. It's it's such a t- it's the tight seat. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Ben, for joining me. My pleasure. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter at the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at Patreon.com/TallyRoom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 